If you've got your Bible, and I trust you do, I'm going to invite you to go to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. We're going to look at three verses. I want to thank my brother, Brother Molly Mello, read Matthew chapter 28. And if you're a note taker, you're trying to figure out what we're doing. The sermon in a sentence is pretty well this. Christ prays for our mission to be fueled by his truth. And that's really what we're going to look at in John chapter 17. I asked our brother to read Matthew chapter 28. And let me ask you something as you heard it read to you. Did you take the time to actually feel the emotions of the passage? There were a lot of emotions described in those 20 verses. The guards that were so afraid and terrified, they literally fainted. They passed out. The ladies, when they first see that grand description of Jesus, have to be assured not to be afraid. And imagine how those same women felt when they saw Jesus and it says they grabbed a hold of his feet and they worshipped him. But did you notice something? As soon as they grabbed a hold of his feet and worshipped him, Jesus immediately commissions them to go and be witnesses for him right out of the gates. Then in the middle of the chapter, we see the panic of both the guards and the religious establishment. And that was, of course, that alarm created a both deception and a denial. And then, then at the end, Jesus calls his disciples to him, men and women, by the way. And they see the resurrected Christ, I might add. And notice again, you see a combination of both worship and yet some doubted. So can I ask us all something here this morning on this last Sunday of August as the fall of 2023 now barrels down upon us? Can you not relate to all of the emotions in this chapter? Of course, this is then followed by by what many in the church know as the Great Commission. Behold, I am with you always, and go ye therefore into all the world, right? But allow me, if you would, to roll the clock back a few weeks, and I want you to turn to John chapter 17, and I want to read verses 17, 18, and 19. So we're gone back now, a little over a month or so, and here is Jesus, and this is what he prays. And I want you to make sure you realize that. This is what he prays. He says, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And then he culminates this middle section of his prayer with, and for their sake, Christ prays, I consecrate myself. And here's why, that they also may be sanctified in truth. These are the last words on the second section of what I would call the great consecration prayer of Jesus in John 17. We are quite literally hours away from his betrayal and his capture of his torture and his crucifixion. And somewhere after the final meal and the institution of what we call the Lord's Supper, before they go to the Garden of Gethsemane, many believe as Jesus and the 11 actually crossed the Kedron Valley. These 11 guys are tired and they're confused 
They've questioned Jesus, and yet they're still wondering. They've doubted. They think of all they've heard over the last few hours. Just what Jesus has said to them in chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16, promises of power, and yet Jesus is leaving. The world will hate them. Jesus is going to die. A comforter is going to come. They will know what to do when they have been promised they'll know what to speak, but then they're told the world is going to turn on them the way it turned against Jesus. They've heard the promise of heaven, the assurance of a place with Jesus when he says, I am going to prepare a place for you. There's the promise of him coming to get them. And yet these are the final words of John chapter 16. Behold, Jesus says, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered each to his own house and will leave me alone. These were his closing remarks. And he says, yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. And he said, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. Now notice the contrast again. In the world you're going to have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Now, again, be honest. Does this not seem familiar to all of us here this morning? Promises mixed with tribulations, assurance and yet feelings of doubt, a sense of knowing all, and yet all the while a sense of not knowing or even confusing, confusion. We get afraid, don't we? We doubt, we wonder. We've been told about heaven, some of you, for your entire life. We've been told how, to, how great eternity is. And is it any wonder that Jesus stops and prays over these 11? But stop for a minute, because Jesus, I want you to realize right here, right now, Jesus is praying for you and over you. Anyone in this room or tuned in online that is a Christian, that is, trusts and believes in Jesus as both Savior and as Lord, is not only a Christian, but you are loved and adopted and cared for and accepted and cherished by God as Father. And now, the truth is that our good, good Father loves us so much he tells us the truth. He transforms us and empowers us. Yes, he calls us to walk by faith. He actually says, I want you to become like me. But then he promises to give us the power to do that. And he promises the love and patience of only an omnipotent, patient God for the process of doing it. And what's more... He gives the blueprint for how to accomplish it, and it's called his Bible. And how do I know this? I just read it for you. Look no further than John 17. Hours before his death, while the disciples are going through some of the worst anxiety and doubts, they're confused and really they're thinking one of probably three things. We've seen it borne out in chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16. They want Jesus either to take them to heaven or they want him to overcome and conquer all the evil around them or maybe, and this is what was really chilling them out in, in a sense of not in a good way, but chilling them as chilling them to the bone, maybe it's all a lie and what are we doing here? Because we're hurting and we're scared and really don't think we can pull this off on their own. And then Jesus 
praise. For himself in verses 1 to 6. He prays for his disciples in verses 7 to 19. And as we're going to see next week, my favorite verse in all the Bible, John 17, 20. In verses 20 to 26, Jesus Christ, over 2,000 years ago, walking probably through the Kedron Valley, stops and prays for all of the Christians of all ages. I love it. But again, let me ask you, can you not relate to these emotions How many of you, if I had the time this morning to say, be honest, how many of you have fought doubt this week? How many of you have had to deal with the horrors of life? Whether it's chronic pain, terminal illness, the anxiety of tribulation, even the trouble of attack, the sense of weakness, the overwhelming sense of it's just too much to bear. And by the way, as I was prepping for today, well, let's just say we have the expression out of the mouths of babes. And this made me laugh. Ralph Keeper was preaching at a missions conference in Deerfield Street, New Jersey. He talked about a little girl who had come to him early in his ministry, and she was about eight years old. She had been to the church's daily vacation Bible school, and she had come into his study, and she wanted to know if she could ask the pastor a question. Here's what this eight-year-old said. Pastor, is it all right if I just want to go to heaven now, and I don't want to stay here anymore? The young pastor was a bit startled by this question of an eight-year-old, but he knew that he should never answer quickly these types of questions without first discovering why the child was asking the question. So he countered and he said, Mary, why would you even ask a question like this? Well, Mary said, it's because of what I learned in this Bible school here at your church that your people teach. (laughs) The pastor wondered himself, what are people telling this child? She continued, we were taught that heaven is a wonderful place. There's no fear and no crying, no fighting, just to be with the Lord. Won't that be wonderful? We were taught that when we die, we will be with Jesus. Did I hear it right, Pastor? Yes, you did, he said, Mary. But why would you want to go right now? You're young and you've got lots of growing up to do and learning yet. And then, as only an eight-year-old can, she said, well... Pastor, you've been in my home, and you know my mommy and my daddy. They don't know Jesus, and many times they're drunk. So we have to get up ourselves in the morning, and we get our own breakfast, and we go to school with dirty clothes. The children make fun of us at school, and when we get home again, we hear fighting and things that make us afraid. So why shouldn't I want to go to heaven right now? Wouldn't heaven be better? J.M. Boyce, the Presbyterian minister, says this. It is clear that Mary did not believe in theoretical theology. She believed in practical theology. And she was facing a very practical problem. What she was really asking was, why are we in this world anyway? The pastor answered by saying this. If this world is such a sin-cursed place and heaven is such a blessed place, why would we want to stay here? Why does God not take us to heaven immediately upon our conversion? And he said, Mary, there's only one reason in God's world why we are here. And that is through our testimony, by life and by word, we might have the privilege of bringing people to the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus 
And then he told young Mary that if she did this, it might be the Lord's will that her parents would come to know the Lord as their Savior, just like she did. She took her young pastor at his word, and 17 years later, her mom accepted Jesus Christ. Notice again with me what Jesus has prayed for and over these disciples. He's prayed for their protection and their provision. He's prayed for them to have gospel assurance and gospel unity. And then he's prayed that as a result of that, they would be a joyful people and a holy people. And as we're going to see today, he wants us to be a truthful people or a truth-driven people and a missional people. You see, the old hymn was right. And some of you are feeling it right here today. Sometimes the day seems long. Our trials are hard to bear. And so we're tempted to complain, to murmur, and despair. But Christ will soon appear to catch his bride away, all tears forever over in God's eternal day. And at times the sky seems dark with not a ray of light. And so we're tossed and we're driven on and no human help is in sight. But there is one in heaven who knows our deepest care. Let Jesus solve our and your problems. Just go to him in prayer because it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. And life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. And one glimpse of his dear face, all sorrow will erase. So Christian, bravely run the race till we see Christ. Amen. So take a few moments with me. I want to look at these three verses very quickly and see how Jesus knows our and your emotions. And he cares. He knows our doubts and our struggles and our weakness and our fatigue and yet he loves he cares and loves so much he prays and yet learn from what he prays so that we too like the disciples and even little mary can live paul said to the philippians for me to live is christ and to die is gain Because when we live for Christ today, we're going to discover you'll have joy, you'll pursue holiness, you will trust God's truth, and you're going to leave here today and be on mission for Christ. So notice with me in verse 17, my first point, Jesus prays that we will communicate his truth. Notice that that's what he prays in verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. You see what Jesus is doing? He's saying the best protection for the disciples, the best protection for you and I in 2023 is this. According to Jesus, it's the protective power of the word of God. And I can't stress this enough. I was watching all the little kids go out of here and go down to Sunday school and no doubt maybe they'll learn this song that I learned when I was only six years old. Read the Bible, pray every day, pray every day, pray every day. Read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll what? Grow, grow, grow. You know, my grandfather said, Stephen, it doesn't have to be complicated to be profound. It's really as simple as that. And we smile and we laugh, but let me tell you, the greatest pandemic of our country and continent was not COVID. It was professing Christians who don't read the Bible and don't pray. 
To make the, bir- the disciples holy is to provide spiritual power that will enable them to rise above the burdens of the world. And so Jesus begins in verse 17. He says, sanctify them by the truth. Now, you've got to catch this in our English because what he's actually saying is twofold. He's saying, sanctify them in the truth. That is, the disciples should be immersed in God's word. That's where you and I need to be. But then he also says, by the means of it, by the truth. In other words, God's truth is the change agent in your life. That's why Paul wrote what he did to the Romans in Romans chapter 12 when he begged them to present their bodies a living sacrifice and he said, be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind. You know what we have a problem in our culture today? It's a thinking problem. But it's also a problem in our churches. You see, holiness, according to Jesus Christ, takes place in accordance with him and the spirit in our lives. We surrender to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And then we allow them to draw us to God as Father in everything we say and do. So when he says, your word is truth in verse 17, that's a whole other level. He's talking about Christ to the spirit, to the word, and that's the means by which the disciples will grow in holiness. So do you want to grow, grow, grow? Read your Bible, pray every day. You don't need a new message. You don't need a new gimmick. We don't need a new package. Show me churches where men and women will read this book, not to simply check a list, but because you want to know the author. And I'll show you a church being transformed by the author. Listen to these words. A lady wrote, as we stumbled down the hill, I felt the little Bible bumping on my back. And I thought to myself, as long as we had that, we could face even hell itself. These are the words of Corey Tin Boone as she stepped out of the train car and onto the ground of the Auschwitz Nazi prison camp. She knew as long as I had my Bible, I could face hell itself. Wonderful sister in the church of today, Jen Wilkin, in her book, Identity, she writes this, if you have a view of God that is inconsistent with Jesus, then you do not have a God who should be worshiped, but an idol to be destroyed. And that's why Paul, again, says what he does to the Romans. In Romans 12, 1 and 2, Paul is simply putting a life directive to Jesus' prayer here in John 17. You see, you can read the Bible, and you can quote the Bible, and you can even memorize the Bible, but unless the author of the Bible lives inside you, you'll never truly understand the Bible or live the Bible. And our problem in the West is we've got too many people that know how to win sword drills and Bible trivia games, and nobody knows Jesus Christ himself. And friends, listen to me. J.C. Ryle wasn't still as right. Happy is the man or woman who possesses a Bible. But happier still is he or she who actually reads it, and happiest of all is he or she who reads it and obeys it. So Jesus prays that we would communicate his truth, verse 17. Now, verse 18, number two, Jesus prays for our commission with his power. Jesus prays for our commission with his power. Look at verse 18. As you sent me into the world, Jesus prays, so I have sent them into the world. Jesus prayed that we we would succumb to neither isolation nor assimilation. 
Jesus does not intend for us to isolate ourselves to be this holy huddle. And that is one of the temptations we have in Christianity in the West. In some respects, in too many parts of our continent, you can be born into a Christian world, you can be raised in a Christian world, educated in a Christian world, work in a Christian world, be cared for in your senior years in a Christian world, and die in a Christian world, and never interact with a world that needs to know Christians. The Christian attitude is to be one of mission. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. The king's doctor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, says the business of the gospel is to bring people to God, to reconcile them to God. It's not even to fill churches. It's not to have good statistics. It's to see men and women reconciled to God. The goal of the gospel, by the way, is not to affirm you or celebrate you or empower you to do whatever you want. Remember what I said a couple of weeks ago. Too many people now, they think they claim Jesus, but nothing changes, and they're true to themselves. Well, you might claim him, but you're not following him, right? The goal of the gospel is to rescue you and transform you and empower you to do whatever God wants you to do. Michael Foster says, nothing grows a Christian like a serious commitment to a single church week in and week out for years and years. Not conferences, not social media, not even personal devotions. The local church is where mature Christians are slowly forged in the fires of mundane faithfulness. M.C. Tenney writes, eternal life is a commission to the fulfillment of God's work. Jesus prays what he does here in, in John 17, 18. He writes, he says, as men and women labor in Christ, they live in Christ, for they can know him only by working with him. Do you know what will make heaven sweet? Is not what Mary wanted. I just want to go to heaven and have no more problems. No, in fact, I have always thought that heaven will be sweeter to Adam and Eve than the Garden of Eden was. I believe when we meet, and that's who I want to talk to, I want to meet Adam and Eve. I want to talk to them because this is my burning question. Tell me what the Garden of Eden is like. And you know what? At one point they knew perfection without redemption. But now they'll know perfection with redemption. And they're going to say, this is way better. And that's why you and I live this. The eternal quality of Christ's life, Tenney says, was revealed by his purpose to do the Father's work. He says, I send them as I have been sent myself. I sanctify myself. He began his prayer by saying that he had fulfilled the work which had been given to him to do. So listen to me now. Eternal life for the sons and daughters of God is not luxurious idleness, but purposeful labor. And so, again, Boyce asked the question, what does it mean to be in the world as a Christian? Well, it can't mean to be like the world. There's too many verses that you know. It's to come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. It's not to be like the world. The marks of the church are to mark, make the church different. But it does not mean that we're to abandon Christian fellowship or our other basic Christian orientations. All it means is that we're to know non-Christians and be their friends and enter into their lives in such a way that we begin to infect them, not with our views, but with the gospel. And rather than us being infected with their worldliness, we should show them Christ and show them how Christ has changed a sinner.
St. John's, Newfoundland doesn't need Calvary Baptist Church or any in this church in this city as to be a bunch of stained glass saints. What this city needs is honest and open and authentic sinners who have found a perfect Savior who want them to know him too. And it is high time we got off our self-righteous high horse and started to live the gospel. And finally, in verse 19, Jesus prays for our consecration through his sacrifice. So he prays that we'll communicate his truth. He commissions, he prays our commission with his power. And then he says, Lord, I want to pray that you'll consecrate my disciples through my sacrifice. I've said it before and I'll remind us again. When Jesus prays this prayer, he's hours, just hours away from betrayal and torture and condemnation and being made fun of and spit upon and abused and crucifixion and death. So they're in the earshot of the disciples and for us to read and consider and to know Jesus who was sent to die. He literally was born to die. Jesus who was set apart, that means he was consecrated for this mission. What was his mission? To make a merciful, gracious, holy God known. To make a way for a holy God to forgive and transform and adopt unholy sinners like you and me. Jesus was sanctified, set apart for this task. Why? So that God could and would redeem for himself a people, you and me. Anyone who will trust Jesus Christ, don't trust yourself, don't trust the government, don't trust the denomination, don't trust anything but Jesus. Jesus, trust in who he is and trust in why he came, trust in what he said, and we do this by confessing, we do it by repenting, we place our trust in him, and then God forgives us. And then you're adopted and transformed and empowered and he guides you and indwells you and indeed sets you apart. But you need to understand this. God sets us apart, makes us holy, consecrates us, sanctifies us with a view of preparing us to serve him. That's what Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 through 10 is all about. See, in many of our churches, we love Ephesians 2, 8, 9, right? For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is what? It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And everybody stops there. But watch verse 10. But we are his workmanship. I love it. The Greek word is poema, where we get our word Poetry. This is Paul telling the Ephesians, you are the poetry of God. Every one of you, it doesn't matter your resume, your life, your failures, your shame, your guilt, whatever you're standing, God still says, no, you're mine. In fact, I will write a poem of my infinite creativity through your life. And he says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which were prepared beforehand. So John 10 reminds us that Jesus is holy as God. Isaiah 6 reminds us that God is holy, 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 as does Romans, Revelation 4 and 5 proclaim it. But John 3 and 10 remind us that Jesus is not only holy, but he's in fact set apart for a reason. It's a mission. And that mission was the cross. But that mission has another component. Jesus saves us and then he sanctifies us. We are bought with a price, but then we're indwelt for a purpose. And there are two ways that you and I are called to do this. First, we point ourselves and we point others to Jesus. 
So we need to stop yelling at the world as if we can just change their morality. No, we need to start saying, look to Jesus, because that's who I'm looking to. And second, we testify how Christ has work in our lives. That's our mission. We are witnesses. We act and talk and live as those who know Jesus and been transformed by him. I, I love it. Al Mohler said, repentance is an evangelical grace which means it is a gospel gift from God. No one can earn their salvation. Only through grace and mercy of God can anyone come to know him. That's our mission. It's our mission. And believe it or not, when the world looks at it, it's mission impossible. You see, again, I know I'm going to quote this guy. Some of you might know him, but this quote is brilliant. God didn't come to make bad people good. God came to make dead people alive. That's why he came. That's our mission, to make us right with God. You see, that's why Nicodemus in John 3 was so confused. How can someone be born again? And what was God's thing? Because don't you know this? You're religious, Nicodemus. You're supposed to know this stuff. When you're, where you don't have to do anything and simply you respond to what Jesus has done already for you? Listen, young people, you don't earn your salvation. You don't have to keep your salvation. You can't lose it. It won't be taken away from you. The devil can't rob you. The world can't steal it from you. You are his and he is yours for eternity. And you know why? It's because Jesus consecrated himself. And we can be consecrated for him, by him, and to him. So you know what that means practically? You can stop running. You can stop making excuses. You can get off the hamster wheel of life and what it feels to be sifted by the lies and deceit of Satan and a system of the world that looks out and says, only look out for yourself. Every time someone says to me, I got to look out for me, Pastor Steve, I put as gentle a smile as I can and I ask, how's that working out for you? Because that's a lonely life. It's a delusional life. Isn't it fascinating? I say this so many times. We live in the greatest age of technology and comfort in all the world. And we are more tired than ever before. And it's because we're not resting and responding to the love of Jesus displayed by his holiness and mercy and grace. And let's be honest, we're all tempted to be like Mary. I just want to go to heaven. We're all tempted by our confusion and our fear and our anxiousness and our doubting. But J.C. Ryle, again, admonishes us to embrace our afflictions. I love what he says here. He says, if we are true Christians, we must not expect everything smooth in our journey to heaven. We must not count it no strange thing if we must endure sickness and losses and bereavements and disappointments just like other people. You see, free pardon and full forgiveness, grace through this life and glory to the end, all of this our Savior has promised to give, but he has never promised that we shall have no afflictions. And I love what he says. Jesus loves us too much to promise that. By affliction, he teaches us many precious lessons, which without it we should never learn. 
By affliction, he shows us our emptiness and our weaknesses. He draws us to the throne of grace and purifies our affections. He weans us from the world, makes us long for heaven. And so in the resurrection morning, we shall all say, it is good for me that I was afflicted. We shall thank God for every storm. Indeed, it will be worth it all. Amen. You see, Jesus did God's will, spoke God's word, and accomplished God's mission so that we can do Jesus' will, read and speak Jesus' word, and accomplish Jesus' mission. To go and tell the whole world, God loves you, and he tells you the truth, and you can trust him and be forgiven and transformed by him. And trials will come, and they are intended to make us think, to wean us from the world, to send us to the Bible, and drive us to our knees. Scotty Smith says, Jesus' empty tomb and occupied throne and constant intercession and steadfast love and lordship over all things, his perfect righteousness, his perfectly dated return are all ours because God made them ours by his amazing grace. So what do you do? Rest, dear friends, and let's live and love to his glory. You see, right now, Jesus intercedes. Right now, he is our advocate. Right now, he proclaims and declares with nail-scarred hands and feet, they are mine. And that is why Ephesians 5 is true. When Jesus washes us and presents us to God as his bride without spot or wrinkle. And by the way, have you ever wondered why Paul uses marriage as the illustration in Ephesians 5? It's not because marriage... Is it not, sorry, because marriage is a great living example of what it means to need truth, to, be, to fuel the mission of marriage so that we are sanctified. For those of you that have done my premarital counseling, right, what have I told you? Marriage is not about your happiness, it's about your holiness. Tim Keller, who just recently went home to be home with the Lord, said this about his wife, Kathy. He said, Kathy and I learned young, very early in our marriage that one or the other of us was going to have to look at the other person in a coffin. And if our Savior was in the coffin, how will he or she help us when our heart is breaking? You can't follow Jesus and hold hands with the devil at the same time. And this is why Jesus prays this prayer of John 17, my friends. Calvary family, Jesus and only Jesus can be our Savior. No one else. Your mom or dad can't be your Savior. Your spouse can't be your Savior. Your best friend or someone special can't be your Savior. Your sons or your daughters can't be your Savior. The government or a famous preacher, not a pastor, not a church. Only Jesus who is praying for us right now. But let me take this even a little further. I have a good friend in Ontario. His name is Mark Betrand. And he's preaching through the book of Hosea. And in one of his sermons, he said this. He says, the 25-year ministry of Hosea begins with a command for him to go take for himself a wife of prostitution. And it is through the lens of marital suffering that the message of Hosea is filtered. His marriage becomes a metaphor of the love of God and the unfaithfulness of Israel. But he says this, but there is more to this metaphor than meets the eye. What does he mean? It declares that God has chosen us with certain knowledge of our failings, which means God doesn't regret his choice. 
But he does desire that we should love him with genuine love. So when Jesus sanctifies himself and goes to the cross we, so we can be sanctified to him for the mission he has called us to, and he knows our weaknesses and our doubts and our confusion. He prays this knowing that the disciples are going to fail. He prays this knowing that Peter will deny him three times. He knows this even though these people are far from perfect. Is it any wonder that the woman at the well in John 4, her testimony when she runs back into town, having four failed marriages and living with a guy, her testimony is, come meet the one who told me all I have ever done. Could this be the Messiah? See, the problem is we know the gospel, but we're not enjoying it and responding to it. And this is what we need to understand. The church is also to look outward to the world and find the object of our God-given mission. Jesus wants us to be a joyful church, a holy church, a truthful church, and a missional church. But I want you to think about this. Jesus prayed for and over his disciples, and they were far from perfect. Quite frankly, some of their worst days were yet to come. But our Savior and Lord sees our whole life, all the while knowing his whole will. Jesus knows us just as we are and loves us so much, he takes us as we are and then changes who we are to be more like him. You see, Jesus prayed for us to be a joyful church and a holy church and a missional church. And how or why or how could we hope to be and do this ourselves? Because Jesus sacrificed himself for us. See, I've been around church since I was five years old. And we throw words like mercy and grace around and we toss out the words of forgiveness and love, but few of us actually think about the ramifications of these words. Charles Spurgeon said, if mercy and grace are your friends, then mercy and grace will be with you in temptation to keep you from yielding. Mercy and grace will be with you in trouble to prevent you from sinking Mercy and grace will be with you in living to be life and light to your countenance. And mercy and grace will be with you in dying to be the joy of your soul, even earthly comfort when it's fading fast. Calvary, I read this week and I want to say this. One man wrote, church growth isn't everything. We're a church that's focused a lot on reaching our community and planting churches. But I want you to know that church growth isn't everything. And that's true, and I believe it. But I want you to know my heart as a pastor. I still want Calvary and Kilbride Community Church and Downtown Community Church and Northern Cross Community Church. And when we go to Shea Heights and Rabbit Town and Paradise and Bay Roberts and all these other places, I still want to be people and a church who, whose members invite their friends to church and into their lives where students still reach out to their fellow students and their parents where we have compelling worship services where we're tenacious disciple makers where we are eager and enthusiastic to have evangelistic conversations because we want people to meet jesus amen because let me tell you churches like that will grow Galatians 5, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But listen to this. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So do you desire to become more holy? Do you desire your life to make an eternal difference in our present world? Then Paul says, don't be conformed to this world. Devote yourself to the study of scripture, not merely for a season, but for a lifetime. 
and for a lifestyle. And if you do, you'll find that Jesus is right in saying sanctification comes through the truth of God's word. So this means that we humbly and expectantly place our hearts under the scriptures. God's Holy Spirit will work with us and in us with sanctifying power. Because Calvary, listen, success in ministry is not drawing a crowd. It's not having a huge budget. It's not being very impressive to the world. Success in ministry is making disciples. And so we have heard about the great commandment or the great commission in Matthew 28, but it actually all started back in Matthew 16 with the great confession. When Peter said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Then Jesus said later in Matthew 22, the great commandment was love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. And that was followed up by the great commission in Matthew 28. But John 17 is the great consecration. The great confession flows out of the stream of God's pure grace. The great commandment flows out of the stream of the great confession. The great commission flows out of the stream of the great commandment. And this is all under the loving, prayerful, attentive watch of the great consecration of Jesus and us. So Calvary, when you know the great confession, then you grow in the great commandment and you go in the great commission and you glory in the great consecration. Oh, and by the way, let me just mic drop this. In the Bible, when you read it, you will not find terms like boomers, Gen X, millennials, Gen Z, Gen Alpha, anywhere in the scriptures. Instead, here's what you find. You find people made in God's image. So let us be a church and a network where every generation has their own unique characteristics and their own unique challenges. And yet, we can all come together with the same great need. And you know what that is? The gospel and discipleship. So let us not look at all these things. What does 1 John 3, 2 say? When Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now, try to wrap your head around that. We are destined to be conformed to Jesus' image, to be as loving as he is forever. So if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, I'd love you to know this is my king. And if you're here this morning as a Christian, you're saying, Steve, you just don't under, understand how hard life is right now. I read this week about Adnarm Judson. We all love to quote Adnarm Judson. We all love to make a big deal of him. But few actually really study his life. He buried three wives, four children, was hung upside down with nothing but his head and his shoulders to rest on the ground for 90 days. Only had six converts in 15 years of ministry. He once was so depressed that he dug a grave and sat next to it for days staring at it. Yet he opened up his Bible and started to read and pray, and God sustained him through the dark days. Don't give up, Adnar. I know you're a weary saint, and wouldn't you know it that he turned and he read 1 Kings 18 and read about the life of one guy named Elijah. And because of that, the Lord, he discovered and he wrote in his diary, the Lord is never nearer than when we feel alone. God has prayed for us. You are not alone. Come to the Father, as we sang. And thus, this is the Word of God.
Let's pray. Oh, Father, I beg of you that my friends and my family, both biological and spiritual, that are here today will have heard a better sermon than I could preach. I pray that these men and women are challenged by your word. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning and they don't know you, may these prayers of you make them hunger and thirst for you. Lord, if there are men and women here who are hurting and tired and discouraged, may this sermon challenge them and encourage them to live as Christ and to die as gain. May they know that they can come to the Father and find rest for their souls. Spirit of the living God, would you work amongst us even now as we respond in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen.